1: Hi, my name is Clarissa Mall. I'm the wife of author and former CT editor Rob Mall. I became a widow in July of 2019 when my husband Rob died in a tragic hiking accident.
0: And I'm Daniel Harrell, editor in chief at Christianity Today, uh, a widower as of April 2019 when my wife Dawn died of pancreatic cancer.
1: Hey, Daniel, I've been really looking forward to this episode because there are a lot of widows that I have talked to. And in the support groups, grief support groups that I've been a part of, every so often we'll have like one or two men in a group of 12 to 15 women. And I think the experience of men in grief is really important to talk about because for sure men grieve differently than women do. And their experience of loss is different than women's is. And I think to care for one another well in the church, we've got to know what those experiences are like. So I'm really excited about our discussion today and about how we can bless the church through it. Now, I know that pancreas cancer works fast. And when you learned of Dawn's diagnosis, what was your response to that diagnosis?
0: You know, it it came on so suddenly. So when Dawn's back started to hurt and we couldn't resolve that, and I finally talked her into going to the doctor and she was in tests that went all day. And then when the doctor pulled us back in the following morning to give us the grim news, neither of us were prepared at all to hear that. And obviously it was shocking. And I think we both looked at each other with a a genuine sense of, of disbelief. And I mean, for me, I broke down and really just started to sob uncontrollably. Whereas Dawn, who has always been the the emotional stalwart in our family not in terms of being able to control her emotions but in terms of being able to express them just went stoic and it was such a odd moment of of a kind of reversal it just recalibrated everything and suddenly we we knew our life was in some ways not the life that we had had or were going to have anymore
1: do you tell people at first i mean i keep things pretty close to the chest but you were a pastor
0: you know, this happened on a Friday. And so a lot of the engagement we were going to need to have with the medical community for next steps couldn't happen. Fortunately, we did have an opportunity to go in for a biopsy. And we were scheduled then to have confirmation of this diagnosis the following week. So we had this weekend where we decided that we were just going to cocoon in a way and just sort of let this news sink in. So, so I did tell one of the pastors on our staff and asked him to hold it closely. We ended up actually going to a a friend's church and inviting him to uh, pray for us afterwards. And so we let him in, and that was super important. And we wanted to tell our families, and so we did that. But it was all provisional because we hadn't yet received the oncologist's diagnosis from the biopsy. So we were terrified you know, because suddenly everything was upended. And it did feel like the proverbial calm before the storm in a way, because we were sort of tying ourselves into the boat and, you know, getting ready for the the tsunami we felt that was to come.
1: I think there's that piece of shock, right? That I remember after Rob died, a widow, she was my neighbor and she'd been widowed for 13 years. And she said to me, it's a mercy that those first days and weeks are things that are hard to remember. It's like your body knows it needs space and time to really process the weight of what you've just heard. And I know that certainly that was my experience after Rob died. And it sounds like you created that space for yourselves so that you could slowly come to a just even a very basic acknowledgement of of what was to come.
0: Yeah, we were genuinely... Overwhelmed. And, you know, because her cancer was stage four, that she wasn't going to survive. But we did not know how long she had. And how is it that we help our daughter, help ourselves, help our families, ready themselves and steal themselves for what's to come? We told our daughter, who was 11, and her first question was, Are you going to die? And Dawn responded, You know, not today. And that ended up being something of a mantra for us in the ensuing months as we found our, our lives being lived literally one day at a time. And there was some beauty and some freedom in that because we could do each day. And we also found that the capacities we had each day to try to wring out of those moments, you know, love and joy and a measure of hope ended up being really precious.
1: It's what grief does to you, doesn't it? It gives you this laser focus on what's important. I found at least since Rob's death that it's been pretty easy to cast off things that don't really matter to me, to really quickly hone in on those relationships and those activities that bring me joy or bring me a sense of peace or purpose and to kind of let everything else go. You said that Dawn became stoic After her diagnosis. And I wonder how did you watch her faith change as she prepared to die?
0: It was remarkable. I, and to this day, as I I remember back, I mean, one of the things that struck me, I mean, Dawn was a she was a real crier. And from the point of her diagnosis to her death, she I never saw her shed a tear. And she would say over and over how she had prepared for this her whole life and how now she knew what God was doing. And being the, the type of woman that she was, a woman who had grown up as a missionary kid in Angola who had seen trauma and, and hardship and, and death her whole life, her dad was is a surgeon. Death was not something that she was unfamiliar with. And now that it was her death, I think there was a sense of fortitude and certainty and knowing, and somehow there was an odd comfort in that. She was never afraid aside from the concern she had for me and our daughter. And it was remarkable to see.
1: Well, it seems like that preparing to die your whole life. I mean, that's We want to think of that as kind of morbid, but that's the numbering of our days that Scripture calls us to, to understand the breadth of our life, the length of our life, and to live accordingly. And it sounds like that in her last days, she was able to work out her faith in very practical ways because of that kind of preparation.
0: It was so important to her. Her first request of me was help me do this well. Mm, I love that. And I I promised her I would. And that affected how we interacted with our communities, how she would speak and engage with people. Like Rob, Dawn was a, a writer and loved to write and express herself in her words, had been working on a novel about a vampire of all things. When she got her diagnosis, she set it all aside. And aside from one note she wrote to me and to our daughter, she she never wrote anymore after the diagnosis, and so I picked up that pen for her. And part of doing her death well had to do with how we would write and communicate that to our communities. We used the Caring Bridge platform, which uh, was incredibly powerful, as people heard and that news spread to folks we had known our whole lives, and the way in which they engaged and followed became a a very powerful testimony to Dawn's life. You know, we ended up doing a a daily kind of journal, and we tried to take her experience and translate it into how it is God works through the crosses and the dying that are parts of our lives.
1: I remember when Rob was writing The Art of Dying back in uh, 2009— he was doing research about the tradition of the happy death in american protestant culture in the 17 and 1800s and the idea that the death of a believer could be instructive to the community
2: hmm. people
1: would write these incredibly glowing and ornate obituaries and publish them in the newspaper talking about what the dying person looked like on their deathbed as a way, not of fire and brimstone, letting people (laughs) be aware of their ends and their mortality, but giving them a sense of what God was doing in those last days, really as a a work of inspiration. What was your community's response to this Caring Bridge? Were they helpful? Was it supportive? What did that look like for you?
0: First, there was the responses you would expect the shock and bewilderment, the support, the promises of prayer. But as we sort of stepped into a rhythm of posting uh, day after day, and this included posting while we uh, led a group of people from our church on a a pilgrimage to Israel, which had been previously planned and Dawn had put together, folks followed in, in enormous numbers. I think by the end of it all, we had some hundred and forty thousand responses as people came alongside, I think you know what we heard most often from people was both their appreciation of, of of sharing the the story and the rawness and the honesty with which we were willing to walk this journey, but also just their own capacity in the context of it to reevaluate their own lives and think about their own deaths and time and to think about their own grief too again, you know dawn had no fear in any of this. And so her capacity to see this as the hand of God was so important for people because we tend to think of death you know, primarily in this way of God having abandoned us in a way. And it's, it's not that scripture doesn't do that. I mean, at the same time, I think that initial emotion does give way to this realization that, oh, okay, here's what God is really doing in me. Years and years ago, uh, we had gone to uh where I'm from in North Carolina for my grandfather's funeral. And uh, we hadn't been married uh, so long. And I asked her when her time came, how would she like to be buried? And and she said, you know, I, I'd like to be buried with a sword. I was like, what? She goes, yeah, a sword. So I'd been really struggling, you know, with what to get her for Christmas that year. I'm like, I'm going to get her a sword. So went up on eBay and I found this large Scottish Claymore sword uh, because she's um, Scottish from both sides of her family. But when she unwrapped it and saw this sword, she was like, what is this? I explained to her, yeah, you know, we were down for my grandfather's funeral and you said you wanted a sword. And of course, her response was like, wow, thanks. We're already getting ready for my funeral. And it was sort of a (laughs) a joke for us. But that came back to us with her diagnosis. And that sword played an enormous symbol, I think, for her in the sense that it represented her faith. It represented how death defeats death. It now hangs over our fireplace as a reminder that death in Christ has lost its sting and that, you know, death doesn't get the last word.
1: I hear you say, without fear, without fear. And I got to press in against that, I guess, because I'm afraid of death. I'll be honest. Rob's death was sudden, it was tragic, it was unexpected, it was horrific. And even though I've, been this close my brush with death doesn't make me less afraid. I mean, do you have to face your end without fear? Do you have to do it fearlessly to do it well?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question and I would say that you know, for most of my life that's been my greatest fear. And I remember years ago there was a beloved pastor in our church who was an amazing man of faith. But when he contracted cancer and was in his last days, he was terrified. And I remember one of his good friends was so disillusioned and disappointed, and feeling like, you know, how does this man preach the power of Christ so gorgeously his entire life? And then when it comes time for his faith to enact, he's got nothing but terror and this abject horror at his end. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's easy to critique, right? But when your time comes, you know, we'll see how you do. And sure enough, not long after, the same man contracted cancer and as he died it was just the total opposite as he died surrounded by friends you know singing hymns it was you know the absolute opposite experience and you know i guess all of that to come back to dawn and say that you know because she was a woman of such deep faith and by deep faith i mean the darkness as well as the light the way in which faith penetrates our soul and exposes our need i think she just was willing to embrace that in the most ultimate sense And it turned out it worked for her. Now, again, I think, you know, her appeal to us to help her do this well was important. But when her time came, when the chemo didn't work, when we stepped into hospice, when she was no longer able to eat, you know, she was able to take those last steps with a sense of confidence because she had a certitude that I think only her dying was able to give her.
1: I really like that. I just (laughs) had to let that sink in for a bit. You were a pastor in a season where, I mean, at least from my opinion, you needed pastoring. What does that look like when you've got a community of people who are depending on you as a shepherd, and yet you're in a place where you are walking through a valley and really need shepherding yourself?
0: Yeah, I think one of the, the weird things about being a pastor, this is certainly my experience, is that Your life, in some ways, because it's so public and because you are preaching and counseling others, you just find that your whole life becomes something of a sermon illustration.
1: Were you okay with that?
0: Well, and this is the thing. I think on the one hand, there was that sense of privacy we've talked about where the initial kind of reflex response is to shut people out. But you know, we just decided to say yes to everything. And I would say even past that, because Dawn and I were both seminary trained and had sort of ministry callings on our life. There was an intentionality we decided to embrace where doing this well meant allowing people to witness it. And again, not in the sense that watch how good we die. I mean, it wasn't that, but a sense of let's be honest because we decided to assume that people's care was genuine, that love was real, and that if God was doing this, it wasn't just for us. I remember I kept thinking, this can't be for nothing. And I found that rather than diminishing my capacity as a minister, it enhanced it in those days. I remember the Ash Wednesday service, You know how that Ash Wednesday, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, remember your dust and the dust you shall return, how those words just took on such grievous import in that season. And because she was diagnosed sort of at the beginning of Lent and died on Easter Sunday, I mean, it became this incredible Lenten period of confronting the thing that really does define us as humans. I mean, that is our awareness of death that gives meaning to our lives. And that was a a true experience for us. But in the moment, it was powerful and deep. And I would say some of my, my best days as a pastor.
1: I started writing monthly newsletters, letters, emails (laughs) to a group of friends after Rob died, just to let them know how our family was doing, because I fielded a lot of questions. How are the kids doing? How are you doing? What do you need? How can we help you? And it was just hard to manage that, especially because our support network was nationwide and a lot of people weren't present in our daily lives. And as I wrote those monthly newsletters, I just had the sense of being carried, Mm. that the body of Christ was carrying us through this really, really difficult time. But there's a sense in which as the body of Christ, that if there's one injured member, the whole body hurts, and we hurt together. And I certainly felt that after Rob died, that there were other people who were hurting with me. It helped to not make me feel alone, even though grief certainly is isolating. And it's a challenging thing to balance because I think there is a sense of exhaustion because people aren't accustomed to walking long-term with people through grief. But certainly the body of Christ carries us too in that really dark time of loss.
0: In some sense, it is again sort of where I felt like those days were some of my best pastoring. I think it was a moment where my church was at its best too. You know, as soon as Dawn was diagnosed, we had a prayer service and people just came out of the woodwork that I hadn't seen in the pews in years. You know, had this season of prayer and and worship that it was gorgeous. And you work really hard as a pastor that your life. Is not a show. You know, I'm trying, I don't want to perform my faith. I want to live it. And so you're wrestling with this tension as soon as people begin to watch. But I think what clarified that for me during Dawn's Dying is that, yes, if we're going to, you know, stand before people and preach or write or say to them, follow Jesus in this way, and then we don't do it, there is a Uh, Hypocrisy there that scripture condemns over and over again. So I felt like I didn't have a choice. You know, I couldn't go silent. I couldn't go and hide because my whole life had been sort of preparing me to help people in this grief space. And what I was grateful for was not only that God gave me the strength and the power to do it, but that people responded like they did. People will often say, What, you know, tell me what I can do. And so I said early on, I'm like, just don't say that. Just do what you feel like you need to do. And we just need you to just love us. And so do whatever that looks like. I think on the one hand, we were overwhelmed by the response that that permission gave. But on the other hand, you know, it was this incredible display of once you're willing to allow people to love you and tolerate that love, it's in there. And people are eager to show it. And we found ourselves... Immensely blessed by that congregation, so much so that when we buried Dawn and she was cremated, and we had buried her under a tree in our yard. When I received this opportunity to to serve at Christianity Today, the the initial plan was to to move from Minneapolis, where I lived, to Chicago, and I was concerned about leaving this tree and these ashes. And so the church rallied around and and dug up the tree and dug up. The ashes, move the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel over to the churchyard. Just that gesture of we'll take care of her if you can't be there was deeply moving.
1: What assistance did you receive with caregiving as you were, you know, in those months where you were you became her primary caregiver? What did that look like before she died?
0: The caregiving role oftentimes, you know, gets short shrift in the grief process. And what I recall was just how glad I was to be able to do this for her. And what an honor it was for me to serve her out of this love space. Yeah, I mean, again, these words like, what a privilege it was. And even, you know, a joy at times as awful as the future was that we were facing. There was just this sense of calling and clarity and purpose that, you know, right now my life is about this one thing. And it Brings me back to this encounter. A lot of us would remember uh, John Stott, the great British Christian writer and pastor, and remember him speaking at my campus years and years ago at the University of North Carolina. And, you know, I I remember asking him where he found uh, his greatest happiness. And in his British voice, you know, I remember him saying something like, you know, it's knowing the will of God and doing it, you know, this kind of joy of obedience. And when you discover what it is God wants, you to do and for me it was helping dawn die well there was this this ironic joy in it and so to get to do what was before me in a way that honored her somehow obeyed what we believe god had brought into our lives there was this ironic joy in that and you know we always draw the distinction between joy and happiness and so it wasn't a happy thing but it was a joyous thing that has mattered even now. So as I'm on the other side and now a widower, that joy helps.
1: Yeah. I think that's one of the things I quickly learned in grief was that joy persists. You get a deeper understanding of what true joy looks like. I certainly feel the same way when you talk about those words, joy and privilege. Even though I wasn't able to caregive for Rob before he died, just enacting his wishes after he died felt like such a privilege. Hmm. We had talked so much about end-of-life issues because of his writing, and I knew what his wishes were. And so when he died, it felt like an amazing, I mean, it was it was a horrible responsibility and yet an amazing honor to be able to love him in that way, to be able to say, this is what he wanted, and I will do it for him.
0: I do want to be careful. I feel like I'm sounding... Terribly sublime here. Like this was, it was all good. It was all good, but it wasn't. It was awful. And I think that's the nature of grace itself. I mean, grace is always most powerful amidst the awfulness. But I think, you know, without the grace, without the love, without the faith that are these core components of our life in Christ, then all we're left with is despair. And that's as awful as grief is, despair is worse.
1: Yeah, I think anybody who's listening who has lost a loved one or is a caregiver for someone who is dying, we recognize that there's this undercurrent of pain that always exists with what you call the sublime, that you never get one without the other in the experience of attending to someone who's dying or grieving their passing. Yeah. It's all intertwined. That's for sure. So you've mentioned a couple of times about this trip to Israel that you took after her diagnosis. And I'm curious about what that looked like, both in a practical way. She's someone who is obviously sick, but also what that experience was like for you and Dawn and for your community together.
0: As soon as the oncologist gave us or confirmed the diagnosis, she looked at me and said, can we still take our trip? And I looked at the nurse, and the nurse was like, "Oh no, we love trips. Yes, you can definitely take a trip." So she um, had her parents coming, uh, we had our uh, daughter coming, my best friend from Florida, and then this group of forty people from our congregation. And details came together in in remarkable ways, even to the point of people contributing to a, a first class seat for her, so that she could lay down and be comfortable over and back. And but I think the thing that was so significant about it because it really was the turning point in her illness. It was a two-week trip, and in the the middle of the trip, she went from being able to eat to no longer being able to eat and wasn't able to take in any food for the rest of her life. And it was this kind of this reenactment of the gospel story itself. but here we were, you know, doing it in the holy land. and as we would go through the the various sites and as these stories were told and As Dawn came alongside and tried to participate as best she could, it was a remarkable experience to be able to have these sights and and sounds of our faith come to bear, but then to experience them alongside a person who was having to tap them for something much more than a a pilgrimage or uh, seeing the Bible come to life. It really was for her uh, stepping in the footsteps of her faith that I think gave her a, a kind of strength that. Just meant so much to her. And so we would write about it and share about it day to day. And we were able to see each other, see our people in our congregation, and to see the Holy Land itself through these amazing eyes that death allowed us to have. So I'm so glad we went. It was hard to do and really hard once we were back because we really came back from that trip and went right into hospice. But it framed it up for us that made that faith become sight, I guess, in a way.
1: So more men die earlier than women. You know, we've got more widows in the United States than we have widowers. Oftentimes in in my own support groups, you'd be one of the minority in the group. And I don't know if that's simply because men don't pursue those kind of support systems, or there are just fewer men who are in grief, losing their spouses. But I just wonder, what can the church do to take care of y'all better? I think there are a lot of ways that women reach out proactively for support. And I wonder, do men not do that? What can we do to make your burden lighter?
0: Yeah, again, I think here's where you know so many of the stereotypes come to bear. It's obviously not the case that we don't have emotions or know how to talk about our emotions and share them. We just don't rehearse that a lot. We love to talk about the things we're doing, the things we've accomplished, the sports we're rooting for, but grief is a universal human experience and I think is not something that men don't feel, obviously. We just don't have the structures in place, I think, that allow us to do that grief work in a way that's helpful. So I think that what churches can do for men is to prepare us ahead of time with rituals of grief, do I want to say that or structures of grief? Like, how is it that we can talk about death and dying and sharing our feelings, you know, before we actually have to do it? I remember being at the the gym and work out and try to stay healthy for her sake, if as well as my own. And I remember this man coming up to me and not knowing exactly what to say, but you know, just kind of wanting to acknowledge the fact that he knew uh, that Dawn was was dying and that he was sorry about that. And he was getting ready to walk away. And I remember grabbing him and just saying, well, let's just stay here and, and let me let you talk about that a little bit more. And so I think the space and the permission and the kind of intentionality to, to go past the, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. But really, how are you, how are you doing? Is important with men because there's this odd shame that comes with grief, this odd self-awareness that and exposure that I think humans but for some reason men just aren't comfortable with. We're just not sure that that we can tolerate people caring for us and loving us in these ways. I've often told people that rather than than not saying the thing for fear of saying the dumb thing, just go ahead and, and say it. I would say for me that when people would press in past the platitudes, and really try to give me permission, whether it's to be angry, to be scared, to be needy, that all of that was really important, that they could communicate. I really want to hear this. I'm gonna be here. And you're not gonna scare me away with a, you know, a crazy answer.
1: Oh, I just love that. I mean, I'm a mom of four and I've got two boys. And so for me it's been a process of teaching them how men grieve, but I have been so blessed by the men in my life who have cried after Rob's death, cried in front of me, cried in front of my kids. My boys need to see that. They need to see (laughs) that real men cry, that when we lose someone we love, that it strikes us to our core so that emotions just bubble up and that that's natural and normal and healthy. As a mom of sons, I am particularly sensitive to how men grieve, uh, the cultural ways that we grieve, and I want to do things well for them. I want to shepherd them well so that eventually when they encounter grief again, that they have this sense of what to do and how to care for others or how to care for themselves well.
0: Our culture you know, places such high value on strength and independence that when grief shows up, all of that gets challenged. And I think as as I was going through my own counseling, the phrase that just kept coming up over and over again is, let grief do its work. Gerald Sitzer, who who wrote his book, A Grace Disguised, uh, a phrase he would use over and over is, let God love you. And I think there's this sense for men that because we might not feel like we have the tools that we need to do what grief demands, that what we can do is to give permission for grief to do its work and for people to be in our lives because grief in some ways is an expression of love. Even, you know, if we don't love, we don't grieve. And so the response to grief is not to isolate and shut down, but to open up and embrace. Because I think one of the things that's hard is if you've gone through grief, there's a sense in which I do not want to do that again, but you're going to do that again. Yes. (laughs) And so instead of being unrealistic about it, lean into it in the sense of great grief means that you had great love. This is surprised by grief, and we're so glad to welcome today Deanna Thompson, author and director of the Lutheran Center of Faith, Values, and Community, and the Martin E. Marty Regents Chair in Religion and the Academy at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. Deanna's also a dear friend whom I met at a writing workshop some years ago as she was writing on her own story about cancer and loss and grief. And I think the wisdom she's brings by virtue of her own experience is critical in this conversation. Deanna, thanks for being with us. I, I thought I would just invite you to start by sharing your story.
2: Thanks so much, Daniel. It's a privilege to be here and with you and Clarissa today. So yeah, I, in 2008, started to experience a lot of back pain. That was surprising for me as someone who had been a very healthy person. Went to a doctor and got some pain prescription that didn't really help a lot and finally had an MRI which showed a fractured vertebra. And then around Thanksgiving, I got out of the car to work and had a searing pain up my side and in my back. And so the week after Thanksgiving, on my 42nd birthday, I went and had another MRI which showed that a second vertebra had broken. So I went to another back specialist and had a biopsy on my back that showed that I had estrogen positive cancer in my back, which meant either breast cancer or ovarian cancer. And so through an ultrasound on my breasts, they found there was a tumor. And so they diagnosed it as stage four breast cancer. And so I had back surgery and started the radiation and the back surgery started to make a difference and make the back stronger. And instead of dying, I went into my first remission. And the kind of cancer I have is incurable. And what it means is that I live with this chronic condition and the hope for the future of people like me is that we will get to live longer and well with serious incurable cancer, and most people don't have that experience. And so making it to 12 years of living with this, I was in my third remission, and just this fall, I had another tumor appear on my vertebra and have just finished radiation for that and I'm waiting scans in the new year to see if the cancer has been eradicated and if so I will move into my fourth remission and hopefully get to keep trying to figure out how best to live with incurable cancer
0: yeah you know you've been intentionally very public about your cancer and your writing your your preaching and I was curious about that decision to be as public as you've been and some of the reaction, you know, you've received.
2: Yeah, I think some of it has to do with the very public way in which I was sick. It was hard to kind of not have it be public. <laughs> Just given that I was a professor, I had probably about 100 students that all of a sudden, you know, I was taken out of that. I mean, there were intentional decisions to be more public. And I think some of that is my personality i don't tend to hold a lot of things under wraps but also we really needed support from people we had two children who needed we needed help with them with me being at the hospital all the time and my husband wanting to be there we needed help with a lot of things in our lives so i think that was part of the being public too is just <laughs> our life is in complete shambles and we can't keep going without support. But also then going forward, I started to realize that by sharing the sadness and the grief and the loss and the struggles with people, that to me, that seemed a way better option (laughs) than shutting down and trying to figure it out just among the few of us. And then I think the last thing I would say is, as a theologian, as somebody who taught young adults about theology and where is God in the midst of our life, in the midst of the best times of our life, but are really also in the midst of the worst. You know, it seemed that if I want to talk to my students about how theology matters and its relevancy, that it seems like I need to also be thinking about how to think about my own suffering in the context of some of the questions that I spend my academic life thinking about.
0: One of the things, Deanna, I have really appreciated in your writing is the way you talk about embodied suffering. Just wonder if you would share some of that.
2: Yeah, I think Arthur Frank, who's a sociologist of illness at the University of Chicago, he talks about how something like a heart attack can blow you away, but cancer tends to chip away at you bit by bit. And I think that experience of having your body be continually compromised is really a lot of the suffering that people who experience cancer, live with cancer as a chronic illness, that they really have to confront. So, We have, because of cancer, a lot of people who lose body parts, whether that's a breast or whether that's other parts of the body. And Audre Lorde, who was a poet, writer, and who died of breast cancer, had one of her breasts removed because of the cancer. And one of her questions was like, how do I live in the world as a one-breasted woman? And I think that's something we don't talk a lot about is about the physical losses. I think one of the things that we're paying more attention to these days is the way in which the state of our bodies is really so integrally connected to our understanding of ourself as a self. And so one writer who died of cancer a number of years ago said, you know, I became a spectator in my own life. And so the way in which the body can become tyrannical in terms of its needs when you're really compromised through both the cancer, but also really the treatments that you have for cancer. And that is where I think the way we've thought about cancer a lot is I think everybody thinks cancer is really serious and really an awful disease to get. But then you go through treatment and if you come out the other side, I think there is a sense of like, so good you're done with that. And one of the things that's become really clear to me as living longer term with this is that you're not really done with with that. And a lot of times the treatment that people go through, it's such a blessing and a gift to be able to live longer with incurable cancer. At the same time, there's more and more experiences of the cancer chipping away at you bit by bit. And the trauma that people continue to experience maybe even 5, 10, 15 years after their treatment ended. Their life is not the same. Their body's not the same.
1: It's really what you're describing is just this very physical daily reckoning. And I wonder, how do you grieve that daily?
2: Yeah, I think that's hard. One of my dear friends, Todd Billings, who's also a theologian who lives with incurable cancer And he's written a book on lament and the practice of lament has become a really important dimension of my faith life. And if we think about something like the Psalms, there are 150 Psalms and the Hebrew name for the book of Psalms is the book of praises. That's what it translates to. And I think it's fascinating that 60 are lament psalm. So close to half of the book of praises are psalms that talk about the absence of God and the breakdown of the body and the betrayal of the neighbor and being fully alone. And, you know, in Christian circles, we don't really talk about this reality enough, I think. So like initially when I got diagnosed, psalm 23 was really, really significant, and I would meditate on that every day, and that was really helpful and important. But as time has gone on, it's actually Psalm 22 that's been much more significant, and Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is really the most deeply lamenting of the Lament Psalms, and it really ends with a kind of Despair. Darkness is my only companion. And I'm glad that not all the lament psalms end like Psalm 88, but I'm actually glad that there is one that ends in despair because it says that faith and despair can coexist. And so I think when you live in that space, the words of the psalms often help us find our own words for some of what we're experiencing. So for me, I've found that the Lament Psalms in particular have been really helpful.
1: That just resonates so deeply with me. And I wonder, I mean, for me, having found community online has just been vital for my support because I live in that middle space. I'm too young for the elderly support groups for grieving widows. And I don't really fit anywhere with my peers anymore as a solo parent. And I'm interested in in your writing, particularly on the virtual body of Christ, because for me, that's been a, such a major source of support.
2: Yeah. Before I got diagnosed, I was really what I call a digital skeptic, somebody who really I didn't own a cell phone. I was really self-righteous about that. I really didn't believe that any connections digitally was really worth Investing in. And on the day I was diagnosed, my brother, who's a few years younger and more tech savvy than I am, said he was going to create a Caring Bridge website. And I tell people if I hadn't been on so much oxycodone at that time, I think I would have protested. And very quickly, I started to realize what an incredible tool that was a tool of support for us that my story of what had happened to me spread. Really quickly, and I didn't have to tell nearly as many people and didn't have to rehearse. That part, telling people is the hardest part. But one of the things that was such a revelation to me was I would have people come and visit me, and it was really, really difficult because they would see me and I could tell that they were seeing a body that looked like it was dying. And then they would get emotional and then i would get emotional and so in other words like the interaction that i would have was like almost completely determined by my body and how my body looked and what i quickly realized is that the place that i felt most like myself was in virtual spaces so on caring bridge i could write in full sentences and not have the tears that were welling up in my eyes, like interrupt my ability to say how I was doing. Whereas in person, I could never do that. And I could actually communicate what I was thinking and what I was feeling. What I realized too, which I didn't know before I got diagnosed, is that sometimes it's just too much to be physically present with other people when your body is so completely undone. I think I would have said before I got sick that it is always better to be present with people in person, but it's really tricky to be present with other people at the very worst times of their lives. And sometimes it's better to be present virtually And other times, it's better to be present physically. And the virtual connectedness that we can have with one another through digital technology can be such a life-giving experience when it's too hard to be physically present. So when I post something on CaringBridge, what happens is that it constantly interacts with in-person connection and care, that these two things are not separate. When you express something virtually, people then better know how to care for you in person. But when we publicly narrate an illness and ways in which it affects us, what we do is also open up space for people to find ways to care for us. So that's what can happen when you share your story more publicly is people say, well, I see in what you're saying this need, and I'm going to try to fill that need for you, which is such a gift. Jesus, when you going to wake up?
1: When you going to wake up and calm this raging sea? Jesus when you gonna wake up
2: when you gonna wake up how can you sleep when we need
0: this episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.